The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman. We're here in Davos, the World Economic Forum 2019, and I'm joined by Marion Salzman, who is the Chief Communications Officer at Philip Morris International. Marion, welcome. Thanks for having me. In fact, I think my title is Senior Vice President of oh. Communications, and I only bring that up because the very idea I do serve as a lead communicator, but the very idea that Philip Morris would have someone with the title communications mm. is probably the entryway into anything we could talk about. I'm sure it certainly is, um, and thank you anyway for, for uh, providing us with the correct title. Already my research is, <laughs> is found to be wanting. So first of all, before we get into it, I've got to ask you this question, a little bit of a test. Do you remember the last time you were on this Echo Chamber podcast. I believe you taped it in Samhavas' office. I want to say it was in Paris. <laughs> yeah, well done. Okay, so well see, my long-term memory is not fading, and my medium-term memory is okay. This is actually, it made me just feel good about my aging. And do you remember when it was? It was going to have to be at least five years ago. I think it was 2013, or so, Okay, yeah. so five and a half. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so you were at Havas. Um, and you ascended to the role of, I think you were chairman of... of the Global Collective, and we were actually, it was the first time we convened, if I recall correctly, the global leaders to begin to talk about how to be um, collaborative and consistent in terms of tools. Right, correct, and become one brand. I feel that was a, one of the goals, perhaps. Which is so interesting, because now as the buyer of PR services, my constant rant and rave is... I can find absolutely awesome agencies in specific markets, and it is very difficult to find any kind of uniformity of either their style of working or the work itself, quality of work itself. So does that mean you would rather just buy best-in-market agencies rather than looking for this kind of network brand across the world? No, it means I'm desperately searching for that network Mm. or networks, because in our case, there will never be um, an, an individual solution. Mm-hmm. Um, there are markets in which we work with um, local or regional players, mm-hmm. and if they're not broken, I'm not going in there to break something. But overall, I think our goal is very much to find single solutions against our corporate, single solutions against crisis, single solutions against consumer. Okay. So why do you think uh, there is such a challenge for network agency brands to provide that consistent experience as someone who's been on both sides of the fence? You know, I'm very schizophrenic in my response because as a former agency leader, I always assumed our best offices would bring the others up to par on a specific assignment. And now as a buyer of services... I discovered that the weakest office tends to drag the whole system down. Yeah. So it's it's um, it's really I think a matter of we need to learn to be better clients, no question about that. But also agencies need to tell us when they don't have. If you can't mount a campaign for me in Germany or in Russia before you bring in an affiliates affiliate, 
just come and tell me, no, no, go back to your local resource. Right. And I think that's the, you know, it's hard. I understand as an agency leader, you're being judged quarterly, you're being judged against EBIT, you're being judged against growth targets. I understand why you want to be, and you're always optimistic. Oh, it's going to be great. Yeah. And then the reality of what it's going to be, I think, is the next challenge. Okay. Sorry, just watch your hair. It's touching the mic. Yeah. Um, so it's a process of osmosis. The best agencies lift up the the. I always I always thought people. I always thought it was the best agencies would lift up. So at Havas, we were obviously great in France. We were great in Australia. Yeah. Um, we were very strong in the U.S. and in, in, in stronger in certain categories and other categories. Um, we were very strong in Manchester, for example. And I always felt, oh yeah, yeah. Well, those agencies can step in. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is. I mean, it's it's the classic high performer for Havas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember. Paul Holmes said to me when I first got there, don't mess it up. And, and that was literally his, I had lunch with him very early yeah. on in my tenure, and he had a few things to say, and his primary thing was, Katie McSorley and that team are doing a damn good job, don't mess it up. So and I think it was very useful advice. It reminds me, many years before that, when I went into WPP, I went to YNR, and someone called me and said, Mary, no matter what you do, don't say anything provocative at MetLife. They've been here since the 1930s. Right. And it, it was... But I think there is a sense that all the agencies would rise to that right. um, level of competency. So, I mean, in the case of Pittsburgh, they were an extraordinary B2B provider. Yeah. Um, in the case of Little Agency, we'd created in Phoenix. They're an amazing consumer agency because they're working in that restaurant and food space yeah. day in and day out. But when you look globally and you're a business like Philip Morris, it's really, really hard to serve us. Yeah. So before I'd condemn anyone, yeah. I have to first say, is it even doable? Sure. We'll talk a little bit about agencies. I'll come back to it a bit later. Let's talk about your move to Philip Morris. Um, so I know this, we've asked you this question before on stage, but it, it was something of a surprise, I think, to, to, to many people when they saw that you were leaving the agency world, um, but in particular to join Philip Morris. Which I is... think actually the harder part for me was to decide to leave Havas. Okay. Okay, because that wasn't something... I'd done a lot of thinking about, I mean, I'd spent five years there as chief strategic officer at the holding company level, had gone back as president of PR, then picked up the global collective under David Jones, was working for Donna Murphy, who's the CEO of Health and the other non-creative, she's wonderful and amazing. I had no motivation to make a change, except that, you know, a two-time brain tumor survivor. And so mm-hmm. after you have a brain tumor, for the first five years after your brain tumor, you're like, mm, will I live or die? So you kind of go about living your life very day to day. And all of a sudden I got to that second brain tumor. It's five years later. You can kind of not really remember the way you feel. And I kept thinking, shit, this means I really am going to live what I want to do with the rest of my life. So that was kind of niggling at my brain. But believe me, I was doing nothing with it. A headhunter called me, and the first thing I did was give her other people's names mm-hmm. and laugh at her, like, yeah, I would go work at a tobacco company. I don't smoke. I'm not interested in tobacco. It sounds to me like a guy's profession. Mm. I kept thinking of stodgy men in brown suits and brown shoes. And I also had a reaction, like, I'm going to tell my family this is what I do, and I'm going to upend working for uh, an agency group where it's just perfectly okay. So it was very much a no, and then I went on their website. After I said no, I went on their website, and I looked at it, and I was like, wait, there's nothing about selling marble or selling cigarettes. It was all about smoke-free, mm-hmm. and it was all about the vision. And I spoke to the head, and I said, you know what? If you want to put my name forward, I'm never going to get called in. I'm going to be way too provocative. 
I don't have significant experience in the regulatory space other than supervising the healthcare agency. But as you know, healthcare at Havas does not need Marion Salzman supervising them. <laughs> supervising meant showing up for a periodic lunch or dinner to be charming. I had not a lot mm-hmm. of role in the day-to-day work. And she called me back about three weeks later and she said, they find your CV very interesting. And I'm like, oh, this is not going. And I was like, all right, well, whatever. I never took it seriously. And this started in like fall or August of 2017. I didn't have my first real meeting with them in a real face-to-face way. It was already snowing outside, so it was already just before Thanksgiving, maybe. Mm-hmm. And each time I met them, I would come away even more enamored. But I was like, there's no way I'm moving to Lausanne. So my family was primarily in Tucson, Arizona, where we have a house where my husband teaches at the law school. An office in Phoenix, which allows me to go home Mm -hmm. for one week of every month. On my own nick, I'd go home another weekend every month. There was just, I'm going to go 24 hours away from home to work in tobacco. Yet these people are really charming, and their mission is really profoundly interesting. And more than once in the search, I called Hydric and said, ah, just pull me out. They're wasting their money. I shouldn't fly to Europe. It's not a good idea. And they're, no, 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 just can you stay in, do us a favor. And mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I'll do you a favor. And each time I would go, I'd come back being really more enamored. And then I think it's exactly this week last year, I was lying in bed with this horrible, horrible flu. And they called me and they made me this offer. And I was like, Huh? Well, I, I, so the whole thing had gained momentum without my really without full mm-hmm. engagement on my part that I was making a life-changing decision. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. But also, I had done over a five-month period extraordinary amount of due diligence, and I couldn't find any reason why people were still lumping them in big tobacco or hating them. Mm-hmm. Because here was a company that was taking its discretionary profits and sinking it into an alternative for people to smoke. Mm. So I I guess I got seduced by the mission. Mm. Okay. And then it felt really normal until I got on a plane with three suitcases worth of stuff and realized when I landed, I now lived in Lausanne, Switzerland. Mm. Um, not a logical place for someone with my hobbies or interests or lifestyle to live in. Um, there's no Chinese food delivery at 10.30 at night. There's no 24-hour blowouts for hair. Uh, you cannot get your nails done at 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, the airport is great. It's Geneva. It don't go, doesn't go to a lot of places. Um, yeah. So I've had a bit of a... I've had no cultural shock coming to Philip Morris. Mm. I've had Switzerland shock. Okay. Now, you mentioned Philip Morris, of course, a company that is a target of much scrutiny is criticized a lot, is often lumped in with big tobacco. How challenging has all of that been in your role? There is an extreme emphasis at Philip Mars on data and science. Mm -hmm. So one area that's been challenging to me is to have to wade my way through the data I need to learn, having to rely on all my senior science communicators to make me smarter about the science. Mm -hmm. So the learning part has been very challenging. absolutely different than anything I'd worked on. Um, The environment has been less challenging than I expected. Mm -hmm. I've had one crazy Twitter death threat. And when I say crazy, the operative phrase is probably not to be taken seriously, but everything at Philip Morris, rightfully so, is taken seriously. Right. I've had maybe a third of the people I know give me a hard time. Why would you do something like this? Why would you put your talents 
or your skills or your Rolodex. It's a bit tough on me. Mm-hmm. But we went to Cannes, and I inherited Cannes as a project. Our digital team had signed on to be at Cannes, okay. and I inherited How Do We Program Cannes. And I found it really interesting. I'd say one in seven people was negative, mm-hmm. four in seven were really curious, and the rest were just neutral and were like, oh, you have free food. <laughs> and so for me, that was a turning point also because it gave me confidence. I would have never had the nerve. Cannes was not my deal. I inherited it, and I programmed it with Jaime Suarez and our digital team. Um, to, the decision to come to Davos was driven by me and, and Mora and her team mm. to make it great. But I don't have this fear because I, A, understand what we're here to do, which is to open up dialogues, not to change someone's mind, is to have a constructive conversation. And B, I don't believe that we should bifurcate our world into lovers and haters. Mm-hmm. I think we just need to better quality conversations. I'm not afraid of a conversation where we're going to get condemned, mm. as long as it's a conversation. Right. So I've heard a rumor that someone significant has given a shout out to WHO mm-hmm. to start talking with us. Okay. It doesn't mean they should love us. Mm. It doesn't mean Bloomberg Philanthropy should love us. Mm-hmm. It, they all have fair and valid concerns. Yeah. And we need to address their concerns and we need to talk to them about how we're changing. But if Philip Morris stopped selling cigarettes this morning, nobody's going to quit smoking. Mm. We would not make a whit of difference other than really damaging the economies of some countries mm-hmm. because we're a significant tax revenue source, significant families. We have some of like 88,000 employees around the world and we have farmers and others. So we would disrupt the global economy. But mm-hmm. we, wouldn't ac- we wouldn't accomplish all of our goal, which is to get people to give up combustible cigarettes. Mm. Okay. Um, part of your mission has been overhauling your agency roster? Would you describe it as such? No, I would say our mission, it's an ongoing mission, is to enhance and improve Mm -hmm. the quality of inputs we're getting from all of our agencies. Okay, Uh, We've added agencies. Actually, in in truth, we haven't really added any new agencies other than a small agency called Launch PR in London. Oh, okay. That's working with us on some, on some interesting project work. All the other agencies we're working with are mm-hmm. agencies that I inherited. Mm. We may have changed what they're working on. Sure. But as of right now, I don't think anybody's new in the roster. Okay. And have you had to have conversations with new agencies about whether they will or won't work, work for you? I mean, we, no, we ran know, a story. I know we've sparred on this. And we've and, talked. And, and I, I we, don't, we didn't spar. I don't <laughs> want to dispute your sourcing, but I will tell you yeah. that what people say mm. and what they do might be two different things. Mm. Um, Do you think they're being disingenuous when they say they won't work for Philip Morris? No, I think they have enormous pressure from Bloomberg, from Vital Strategies, from Big Pharma, rightfully so, mm-hmm. in terms of they have a right to propagate a message about social good. Mm. But I would say that people look for creative ways to work or to provide workarounds. Mm. That's what it seems to be like to me, because you have individual agencies who have gone on the record as saying they won't work. And look, there's a couple of agencies I'd love to work with. I'd love mm-hmm. to work with Weber Shamwick. They are absolutely telling you the truth. They will not work with us. Mm. But Interpublic has this group. Team IX uh, works with Team us. Team IX, which okay. does work with you. So that's it seems correct. to be like there's a and holding that's what I'm group. Saying to you, but I mean, look, I, I'm, mm. I'm not impeaching the integrity of any. Weber Shamwick has, I mean, I've gone begging. Mm. Even this week, I saw mm-hmm. them like, would you put, no, they won't, and they won't because they've made commitments mm-hmm. to various institutions and clients, and I respect that. Mm. doesn't mean I won't keep begging, right. but I respect that. Yeah, but you haven't found it a challenge to find good agencies, good I agency have, people to so work I for you. I want to be honest. I found it a challenge to make my good agencies get better. 
Mm. I have not found it a challenge to find agencies to work with us. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and what we have done is we sometimes focus our spheres of energy with agencies into the places they can actually do the best work for us. Mm -hmm. So you, for example, reported on historically that BCW, they do a fabulous job for us in Asia. So mm. they are working with us and flourishing in Asia. Mm. Um, we've worked um, with Hamas in France historically. They're doing a good job for us in France They're, that we've extended. We now work with the Red Agency out of Australia. Mm. So I think that it's, there's no new agencies joining the roster. Mm -hmm. um, we work with Kext. A publicist agency. We've always on and off worked with publicists in various roles. We'd always we used to work with the CNC side of CNC Kex. Now we work with the Kex. So, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, there's no complaints. I just want to raise the bar across everyone. First of all, I have to raise the bar on my side. Mm -hmm. Until we're better clients, I can't shake up an agency and say do better work. Mm -hmm. So, coming back to the actual work, how big of a concern is it for you in terms of? governments that are looking to strictly regulate the, um, the smoke-free products you have, in some cases, even banning them? So it's less banning them, it's more not accepting them. It's more the process you go through to be accepted, to be able to be on sale. Mm -hmm. But let's step back for a second. Look, my entire business mission is what I call B to C to R. It's business, mm -hmm. our needs, to our smokers and those who love him to influence regulatory. We need a grassroots groundswell mm. to ensure that regulatory bodies understand and respect the importance of harm reduction. Mm. Um, governments are super important to us. I don't manage our government affairs folks. Mark Firestone, our uh, president for external affairs and general counsel, has a very large, a couple of hundred people, I think, working in corporate affairs, regulatory, and the regulatory. We have a regulatory and science communications arm that's run by Maura Gilchrist that is very strong and very wonderful. Mm -hmm. Look, governments are at the top of my agenda. Some days I worry about consumers, some days I worry, when I say consumers, I mean legal age smokers and the people in their immediate worlds. Mm -hmm. Some days I worry about governments. I mean, yeah. we're here t in Davos to try to have impact both through the media and through bilateral meetings with those who are in position to regulate. Mm. One thing I will tell you, and I'm going to get the data slightly wrong, and it's very unphilip Mars to give data that's slightly wrong, so I'm urging your audience to bear with us. Plain packaging has been the law in Australia for many years. Mm -hmm. It's had zero impact in terms of cutting back on the number of people smoke. Okay. So I just want to be clear that you can regulate all kinds of things. People seem to want their nicotine. Mm. I wish they didn't. Mm -hmm. I wish that we were in a place where... Um, our smoke-free products were thriving. It was leading to people quitting. Mm -hmm. But we're a long way from that. People, one in seven people on the planet smoke. Is that, I think that's the right number. Mm -hmm. Certainly over a billion people. Yeah. So it's a, pro it's a challenge. Okay. It's an opportunity. Yeah. And it's an opportunity where governments are going to have to partner with us and the other tobacco slash nicotine providers to just be sure people understand what they're getting into when they start and stick. Mm. So and, and lastly, I'm kind of curious, so you've brought in some new people um, into your department, you know, Aaron Sharinian in particular, uh, and you've worked now, you know, PR agency side, ad agency side, you had a long career with, of course, with TBWA. Can we not use the word long? Can we stuck a bit of career? Sorry. Substantial. <laughs> Substantial. <laughs> Meaningful. JWT, TBWA. Yeah. What's the kind of person that you think thrives today in this kind of 
communications environment? It's a, that's a, that question is a wonderful question. It's one that we've really been working on because I've done two things. I've taken people who already worked at Philip Morris, both in comms and in other areas, and brought them into the comms function. Our function's obviously growing. Mm. Um, and I've brought people from the outside. The single most important thing is resilience, mm -hmm. followed by curiosity, right. followed by a single-mindedness. Mm. Um, in our business, it's not a business for dilettantes. If you don't want to go home and nerd out, I mean, to use Aaron's word, nerd out, um, it's probably not for you. And it doesn't make you a bad person, it doesn't make you a bad communicator, but our work requires a certain amount of homework. Mm. I mean, I sort of say, I, I took a book home on a Friday, and I earmarked all day Sunday to read this book, and I wanted to learn all about nicotine. I got through, and I'm a pretty good reader, and a pretty good student. Nine hours later, with my yellow marker, I'd gone through 40 pages, made index cards, and I would have failed the exam had it been like ninth grade. Because it's hard stuff to learn. Mm. And I think that, so you've got to be resilient, you've got to be um, curious, and you've got to be really prepared to really nerd out. And then the last part is you've got to be proud. You've got to be really sure of your choice to work at Philip Morris. Because mm. otherwise it's too easy. Because lots of times people say no to us, mm. And really what they mean is yes, maybe. And you've got to hear the yes, maybe and the no, and then zig and zag. Mm. A little bit like your question to me about agencies. No, I cannot get the agencies at Interpublic that I have earmarked that I'd like to work on my business to work on my business. That is a mm. true no. Do you get the sense from people that they're worried there might be a stigma attached to working at Philip Morris? I actually have a policy. When I make an offer to someone on the outside, especially I've been... I brought Jody Soon over with me from Havas. Mm. I've recently made um, an offer to someone who worked with me in the past at TBWA. I asked them to meet with their families and take one week mm. and to absolutely, during that week, make a vision of themselves and where they want to be in 10 years mm -hmm. and decide if they think a tobacco affiliation is going to bruise them. I had one luxury, you've already alluded to my elderly age, the one luxury <laughs> I had when I was coming was I... I had to make a decision. We had to make a decision as a family. Mm. Is this what I wanted as my last communications career? I still probably will do something else in my mm. older age. But what I mean by that is I think one really has to think through if you want to go back and work at the UN, I don't know if you should join us. Mm. If you want to go back into the NGO activist space, uh, you have to make some decisions. Mm -hmm. If you want to go work at a Unilever, I can't tell you you can leave Philip Morris and go to Unilever. Mm. So you need to make those choices. So I, we make the offer, and then I, I call the candidates and say, do me a favor. Take the time to sit down and say, what's your dream scenario 10 years from now? Look, I hope for our sake and your sake, you're still at Philip Morris thriving and doing everything great. But if you're not, is your vision a vision that this will bruise you? Mm. If it is, say no to me. Sure. I think you've got plenty of acts after this. <laughs> I'm not suggesting anything to the to the contrary. Marion, thanks so much. I think you probably need to, to get on to whatever your next thing is because we're in Davos and yes, I don't you. think we have that much spare time. Um, it's been great to have you back on. Hopefully it won't be another five years before you're next. And you need to come to Lausanne and go to our Science Cube and then we'll do another one. All right. I great. look forward to that. Thank you Thank very you. much. For our next podcast from Davos, we're joined by Corinne Woods, who is the Director of Communications at the United Nations World Food Programme. <laughs> Got it right, first attempt. Well done. Um, Corinne, thank you for joining us. Um, first of all, how's your week been so far in Davos? So the week has been very interesting. I mean, I think it's been, for us, it's an opportunity to connect with people mm -hmm. in a space and bring our challenges to many people who can help 
deliver our challenges and help us deliver our challenges. Mm. So it's been a very good week of connection. This Davos has felt almost quieter, mm -hmm. stiller and more substantive. Mm. And in a world of sort of, often these things feel like speed, speed, speed dating, you mm. know, you're, this has felt much more that it's about embedding longer term relationships and commitments. Mm -hmm. And so to that extent, I think for us, it's been, we come here to make sure those commitments, those actions, those partnerships with the private sector are really going to help us deliver our aim. Mm -hmm. And you know, you probably didn't know who the World Food Programme was and people listening might not. And I'm the, you know, I'm Director of Communications, Advocacy and Marketing. Mm -hmm. So you might want to say, well, what the hell is she doing? We should get rid of her because we don't know who it is. But the real challenge we've got as the World Food Programme is we're like the best business to business. Mm -hmm. We're the world's largest humanitarian organisation. Mm -hmm. We last year fed 93 million people. Mm -hmm. Of the 124 million people who are on the edge of starvation, we're out there. A load of them, we're giving them cash to go out and buy. Others, we're bringing in food and commodities and you know, high quality food so that you know, they can combat malnutrition. But you don't know us. Most people don't know us. I do know you. I'm you sure you do. <laughs> but no, I know that's not fair. But you know, yeah. lots of people don't. Mm. And the reason is we're business to business. Mm. We've, we have grown. We're $7.4 billion last year. Yep. We need $9 billion. That $7.4 billion, more or less 95, 96% of it comes from governments. Okay. So, oh. so there's a big gap then. There's a big gap. Right. So, you know, it's coming from governments. But we know that if we're going to meet the nine billion need, yeah. we're going to have to make sure that people know who we are. Yeah. Private sector want to work with us yeah. either to bring their resources or to bring their expertise to ensure that we're reaching those we need to reach more efficiently. So the, the vast majority of the funding is coming from governments. Yeah. It's not coming from the private sector. No. Why not? I think probably because we're an organisation whose main focus is to get it done and mm -hmm. get it done efficiently. So in our saving lives work, what we're doing is we're out there. We're feeding today 8 million people every single day in Yemen. Mm -hmm. We're scaling that up to 12 million within the next period. Mm -hmm. We're doing the same thing in northeast Nigeria, in DRC, in South Sudan. Mm -hmm. And because we can be trusted to do it, we're efficient, we're effective, Governments are funding us. Mm. And so we get that done. And so our business model has been, we get the funding, we're trusted, we're a great partner, we do it. Mm. And so we haven't had a big need to go out to the public, go out to the private sector and say, bring us your resources. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that some private sector partners haven't been incredibly good partners. MasterCard, mm -hmm. a pledge for 100 million meals, that sort of level. Yum, an amazing partner in terms of support for us, DSM. But we haven't done it at scale. Mm. But because we've got a growing need, numbers since the, since the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted in 2015, mm -hmm. the situation has got worse on hunger. Zero hunger, we've got to go to zero hunger. Guess what? We're not going to get there if we continue at this rate. Mm. You know, we're talking about going up from up to 124 million people from 90, mm. you know, of the people starving. So things are getting worse. 
our needs are getting bigger. And that's even before we start on the sort of work of changing people's lives in countries like uh, Peru, mm -hmm. like in and India, those sorts of things. So we haven't had a need, but we now do. There's a two billion gap. And either we're going to fill the two billion gap by great shared value partnerships where a great tech partner can come in and say to us, you can do this more efficiently. Mm. We'll help you do that. That saves money. Mm -hmm. We've got a few on the boil at the moment on that side. Or by a partner says, we can help you and we can actually help you with the resources. But in order to do that and in order to get the money from individuals, we have to brand ourselves. Mm. So now from a kind of pure branding point of view, we're saying we need people to know we're a great organization. We mm. deliver, we get stuff done, and your dollar as an individual will make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be great marketing partners. Yeah. And so that's what we've started to build is great marketing partnerships to, with various players to actually build our story out. So both the private sector will come with resources and also individuals. Mm. Okay. Now, one of the big themes I've often noticed at Davos every year is about how companies here talk about their their um, their purpose and their values, and they're trying to help address social issues. Mm. Um, now, surely that is helpful for an organisation like yours. Yeah. Um, do you think it's always genuine? I think. I don't think it's a question of genuine or not genuine. Mm. But it's about understanding the contribution. So understanding the skill set or resources or capacities that a player will have, mm -hmm. the private sector player will have, and having clarity on how those will help to deliver to the social issue, mm -hmm. let's call it the sustainable development goals, how those will deliver, and actually squaring up that capacity or skill mm -hmm that area of expertise, into the outcome that is, say, zero hunger. Mm. And making choices and making decisions on that that are commitments to take it through to the end. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of talk, mm. but until you go through the door and have real commitment, and sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's not easy to mm. work out, okay, how can I, as a tech company, really make a genuine difference to the trajectory of hunger, mm -hmm. food supply chains, or as opposed to fiddling around the edges. I think mm -hmm. sometimes there's that challenge. Mm -hmm. That takes commitment, that takes some understanding, that takes for us as the World Food Programme, we're open for business, mm -hmm. to work with business, but we have to understand what the business of the business is right. to understand how can that help our big challenges. Mm -hmm. That's a commitment. It's a bit like, you know, you're not going to have a great relationship if you don't actually have conversations and understand who you are and what you are and what you bring to the parties. Mm -hmm. And also understand the difference, mm -hmm. the differences between a UN agency like the World Food Programme and a, a partner like a MasterCard. Mm -hmm. like a Palantir, like an Ericsson, mm -hmm. and then do that. We've been working with Ericsson for 18 years. Mm -hmm. 18 years of commitment. Now, if you think how that company has changed, mm -hmm. how its vision has changed, you think how WFP has changed. We have been married or in a relationship for, 15, for 18 years. Mm -hmm. That means we can really get to the 
crux of our challenges and work with them to turn those things around. And that's where it becomes interesting. So I don't really want to get into, is it genuine, isn't it mm, genuine? Sure. You, have, you have to believe it's genuine, mm. but you have to work at that sort of commitment. Mm -hmm. In marketing, for example, we want to build our brand out. So we chose Cinema, SAWA, the Global Cinema mm -hmm. Advertising Association, as our partner of choice. Yeah. They have committed for three years to work very closely with us to tell the story of both the hunger agenda, mm -hmm. the potential lost in the world, to their audiences. Mm. Now that's a very deliberate, very intentional, very thoughtful partnership mm. that will then bring in other partners and actually build things out. Mm. Together with them and AT&T and Facebook and Live Nation, we have a council of great CMOs mm. who are helping us think about building those brands. Oh, but that's wow, a okay. long-term relationship. Yeah. So it's not a quick, hey, yeah. we can do something cute for you. This is about really understanding what we're doing and working with us as the World Food Programme to say, okay, we can make this thing happen because we can help you think about this thing and bring our capacities. Mm -hmm. But it's that, that deep relationship is the only way we're going to be able to deliver. Okay. So for you, Davos is very productive because you can have those conversations, presumably, yeah. with businesses that perhaps you can't have anywhere else. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, so, you know, if we think about our world as the UN, mm. our world as the UN is, you know, my main focus at the moment is how are we sorting out our situation in Yemen or mm. in Syria? And that's where our focus is. Mm. And then we then come to places to have conversations about bringing that world, the reality of those furthest behind, mm -hmm. into, that, into this situation. So mm -hmm. Davos is a place where the conversations are ongoing and we can connect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we met three years ago with actually an NGO, YGLs, so the Young Global Leaders, yeah. a couple of young global leaders who were setting up this thing called Gastromotiva, mm -hmm. you know, kind of about food movements and so on and so forth. We met them three years ago. We then did something small the following year and something. And now we're going to move into a multi-year, multi-country partnership. Mm -hmm. So Davos is also a touch point for how are those partnerships going and where are we going. So what do you, I'm curious to know, what do you make of the, the criticism that Davos sometimes receives, that it's kind of um, a place where businesses come to perhaps atone for the sins they commit throughout the remainder of the year? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, who, who, who knows? Maybe mm -hmm. the businesses we work with are the businesses that don't need to atone. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, because we're having long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. And I can only look at it through our lens. Mm -hmm. We're in the business of the poorest, the most starving, the most difficult situations. Mm -hmm. That's what we're in the business of doing. Davos, this platform, this place provides us an opportunity to connect with the people who can help us do that. It's super practical, mm. you know, it's practical. I'm not going to be philosophical, what else is going on? For us, it's super practical. Yeah. We're open for business, we're getting partnerships with business, who can help us get there? Yeah. And if that's going to happen, the rest of it, the mm. rest of it is the rest of it. Yeah. And you know, all those if people are doing deals or whatever else, that's what's going on. The parties, this, and, yeah. So be it, mm -hmm. life is life is life is life. What we find as the World Food Programme, we come in here and we say, these are the deals we want to have. This mm -hmm. is what we're delivering. Sometimes we're nurturing them. Sometimes we're having new conversations. Sometimes we think this could be really interesting. It's changing how we think about things. We go away and we say, this is what's going to help us make it. And it's super focused on our end goal, which is that, you know, no one goes to bed hungry. 
those people on the edge of starvation on are moving away from starvation and more importantly you've got communities who are actually building them for themselves the sort of resilience and the ability to actually have the sort of economic growth so in some ways mm-hmm. that stuff that's a conversation you know mm. let that conversation happen it's useful for us we like coming here and we like the opportunity of a gathering of folks who we can then bring our world to say help us get there sure so, yeah so one other thing I wanted to ask you about what we're seeing you know in this world today this kind of rise of populism mm. people seem to want to build walls and barriers and and, and dis- disassociate themselves with people who they think are not like them there's a it almost feels like there's a rising fear of the other mm. um, and perhaps a you know a rise in xenophobia does that pose a marketing challenge for your own fundraising efforts well I think I think sometimes what you have to do is sort of go to deep root emotions mm-hmm. and set the point of, of connection and not difference absolutely you know yeah I'm British I you know Joe Cox the MP who was murdered mm-hmm. there's more that unites us than divides us yeah. that idea is very powerful so you know a simple thing which is a connection that says it's not a connection about a a Syrian and a Brit or a Syrian and a German. It's a connection over food. Mm. So, you know, from a marketing point of view, sometimes we go two levels down mm-hmm. and say the connection is here. So, you know, you think about all those kind of people who are like, right, I'm not going to use a plastic bottle, mm. you know, and I'm going to, you know, sort out my food waste and I'm going to recook it and all that stuff. That's, that's, that's not so different from a farmer in Ethiopia who's thinking okay this is how I'm going to actually minimize my food waste Mm -hmm. because they're both doing things which are good for the planet Mm -hmm. and ultimately is going to help with the issues on climate change Mm -hmm. and we're seeing the impact of climate change we're seeing it in some of the communities that we work for so sometimes actually going to that point and making the connection the person to person Mm -hmm. I was in Azraq refugee camp not long back looking at our biometrics and how we're kind of selling food and cash to people. Mm. I'm walking around being the kind of UN person looking at this. This woman stopped me and she said, do you want to come for dinner? <laughs> I said, no, I'm, I, you know, I've got to get back to the capital. Mm. And I said, but what are you cooking? And she sort of got her chicken out. And I mm. said, chicken, it's the weekend coming up. Do you cook chicken at the weekend? She said, yes. And I said, how do you cook it? Mm. She started describing how she cooked it and it's something like maloof. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how she did it, but how her family liked to put it crispy and how she put it on the fire. And I was like, well, you know what I really like to do? I like to put a lemon inside. And mm-hmm. suddenly we weren't, she wasn't a Syrian refugee and I wasn't a UN person. Mm-hmm. We were just two women having a conversation about how we like to cook chicken. Mm-hmm. And I think our marketing challenge is to create that moment mm-hmm. of connection as opposed to that moment of difference and then do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then finally... From a kind of personal level, as a communications professional, mm-hmm. how do you find Davos? What do you mean? What does that mean? As a, <laughs> from a personal level, as a community, how well, do I find... thinking perhaps not in terms of your mission here for the, for the UN World Food Programme, yeah. just on a kind of someone who's here encountering this sort of sensory overload that Davos provides every day. What is the experience like for you? Um, you know, I said the point about speed dating mm. earlier. Sometimes, uh, well, this is why this year has been very interesting. Quite a lot of, at times, 
I found Davos to be too much. Mm -hmm. Too much sort of, you go to a dinner, there's a dinner, there's a reception, you're having a conversation, but it's actually just like, hello, 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 mm. nothing. Yeah. Totally agree. This, this, this feels like the temperature has, well, the temperatures have dropped, but the yeah. temperature has dropped. And there's almost been like a point of space and quiet. Mm. So I was just talking to a colleague because I was at a, a reception last night, you know, Gates Foundation goalkeepers, and 100 people in a room, it's 10.30 at night, 10 o'clock at night, we've all got a glass of wine, there's not much food, mm -hmm. and we had, they had six speakers, mm -hmm. now, albeit, Bono, Richard Curtis, I mean oh, good right. speakers, Okay. but there was absolute focus. Mm. Real sort of focus. This conversation we just came from this morning with Alan Meribarat and um, I can't remember the other two about kind of young women and that kind of the space around the young and the restless. Not a moment, you know, people were super focused. People weren't all on their phones. Mm. I don't know. I just think that it's sort of honed down mm. and a little quieter. Personally as well, I'm, I've, I've been very selective as a, I, I come and I think... I'm interested in these conversations. So I'll go to some places and just be interested in the conversations. Mm -hmm. But I try to have a line of thought mm -hmm. in the interest in the conversations. Right. You know, at the moment, I'm interested in how do you work with young, passionate people who are doing incredible things without grabbing them, badging them and owning them? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's my thought. How do you get a, a, a kind of a voice of people which doesn't say it's WFPs, this generation or whatever? So... I've been very deliberate on a personal level that I'm just going to listen into these conversations and do that. Mm. So you have to be a little bit like kind of when you do yoga, you cut out the noise, yeah. just focus on the, the things that are here. And that you just like, all of that is noise. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, sound and fury signifying nothing. Yeah. It's signifying something for someone else, but not for me. Sure. These are the things. Very zen. Very zen. That's I'm, the way to I'm, be. I'm Only impressed. way to be is zen. <laughs> I mean, you're, the, you're the most zen person I think I've met in Davos <laughs> so far. I'm impressed. Yeah. Corinne, thank you so thank much you. for your time. Great um, to see and you. have a great rest of the week. Great. Thank you. Thanks for this. No problem. Welcome back to the Echo Chamber. This okay. is Arun Sudharman. Um, again in Davos. And I'm joined by Abhinav Kumar, who's the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for Tata Consultancy services, TCS. Abhinav, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thanks, Arun. Uh, always a pleasure to do our annual catch-up with you at Davos and, um, you know, also looking forward to the excellent event that the Homes Report is organizing later this afternoon. Yeah. Well, I, it's an event. Whether it'll be excellent or not remains to be seen, but I, I, I um, appreciate your confidence. Well, well uh, <laughs> given the topic you've chosen of communications in the age of rage, rage. and mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, it links very nicely back with the theme of Davos this year, which is globalization for 4.0, mm -hmm. essentially talking about how um, the geopolitical order is in in transition currently, right? Mm -hmm. And between the trade frictions which we see, the shifts in, um, uh, in, in, in the blocks which are working together, the declining um, situation for multilateral bodies. Yeah. Um, all driven by mm -hmm. um, the deficit in trust which is there in institutions and politicians and organizations sure. which has grown and is showing in the political cycles and, and it's interesting you you brought up all those factors and you've been coming to davos now many years 10th year for me so wow. yes it's, well, uh, congratulations. it's a long time that's quite a landmark you are now davos man you have become the kind of davos archetype now 
Uh, not really. I mean, I think it's a, it's for us. It's an extremely valuable platform, right? Yeah. Because um, we come here every year. Uh, right at the start of the year, it's it's a great place to gauge the sentiment uh, mm-hmm. on what's going to happen in economies. We meet so many people from different countries, from civil society, from academia, and uh, for us as a business to business company, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a good uh, percentage of our clients are here, right? So it's a it's a great way to start the year thinking about. What are we going to be doing together later in the year? And so the conversations, one-on-one conversations, are the most valuable thing to us uh, about Davos. Sure, um, but having said all that, and having and being someone who's been to Davos a lot, the, all those factors you brought up before, you know, this kind of yes. th- these threats which the Davos order is facing, that the, the world as represented by the Davos order yes. is one of liberal consensus, globalization multilateral bodies and yeah. they're facing so many threats do, do you feel that more pronounced this year in davos um i would say yes i think a lot of the people we met many of the ceos we are talking to mm-hmm. um you know we put the same question to them on you know what's what's the sentiment this year what are, what are you thinking of and so on and mm-hmm. i think um if i am to kind of crystallize that in 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 uh, sort of one statement mm-hmm. um what they seem to be thinking is you know what's got gotten them so far is not a model which is going to work in the future right mm. so they're reflecting on on various parts they're reflecting on their uh, core business model and economic model and seeing you know the threat from digital disruptors and how do they need to change their strategy mm-hmm. they're looking at the pressure they're receiving from civil society from their own employees to take uh, you know uh, the the point on brand activism for them to take positions on political and social issues mm. um and they think, you know, so the, the CEO role, the chairman, chairperson role in any company is under uh, a lot of pressure mm-hmm. to, uh, to do a lot more in many areas. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, just a, a day ago, um, we hosted a, a discussion here. Yep, that I came to. Which you came to. Uh, thank you for coming. Mm-hmm. Which was exactly on this topic on, you know, what is the evolving role of uh, the boardroom and the CEO? In um, in this in this age, uh, in managing the brands and reputations of their companies, and it was a it was a fantastic discussion, uh, and you know we spoke to the panelists after that, and they said it was a moment while talking on the panel of self reflection for us as well, mm. right on what should be our stance uh, on on certain issues, whether it's a political development, whether it's a social issue, it's an inclusion issue, it's uh, equity, mm-hmm. etc. So. I think that is really on top of the mind for uh, this, this, the CEOs and the chairpersons who are here. Sure. So I'll come back to the CEO activism angle in a little bit. Um, I'm curious just to hear a few more of your thoughts on Davos this year. A lot of talk about how you know the absence of political delegations from the US, um, from the UK, although apparently half the cabinet is still here, uh, from France. D- does that weaken or strengthen Davos in your pers- from your perspective? I think if you look at our perspective, um, I would say we've had a very productive Davos mm-hmm. because um, from the business world, um, a lot of people are here, even better than last year. So we've had a lot of uh, engaging meetings on that side. Uh, you're absolutely right in pointing out, I think, one of the things which da- this Davos will go down in history for is um, the fact and in a sense, it plays uh, absolutely into the theme of Davos this year that the geopolitical order in the world in such a unique position that um, I guess a lot of the big leaders on the world stage have not managed managed to make it here. You were talking about it, the President of the United States who came in here last year, which was a big buzz around it since mm-hmm. the President from that country had not come here for, I believe, uh, 20 years or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, the, the UK Prime Minister is not here because, of course, she's dealing with the situation on, on Brexit. 
um, many others in India. There's election coming up, and mm. therefore, you know, the government and the prime minister and all are involved with that. And um, you know, I think several other of the tall leaders are not here. Some are here. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people are very interested in hearing from the br new Brazilian president who's here. So that's uh, that's one of the things. And of course, Chancellor Merkel was here, and it was a moment for her to talk more about the recent uh, accord between France and Germany struck in Aachen to renew their uh, bilateral relationship and strengthen Europe and the liberal order and which we are talking about. Mm. So I think that uh, absence is certainly there compared to previous years. Mm -hmm. uh, every year in Davos, uh, usually there's, a, there's something which is called a star of Davos, right? Which mm. is an outsized political figure whose, um, uh, you know, view or uh, is, is very current at that moment. If you looked mm. at it last year, it was, uh, you know, Prime Minister Modi Mm. coming in for the first time and of course uh, then the president of the united states also came in along with him mm. and uh, so they, they were the two things if you if you if you went back a year it was president z from china mm -hmm. coming in and uh, you know giving a powerful message supporting uh, the current world economic order mm -hmm. um, the year before that was justin trudeau who had just come into power and you know bringing out uh, talking about equality and so on and so forth so there's always been that i think if you have to ask people who's that person this year i guess it's nobody Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, but that, the business world is here. I think academia, yeah. everyone's here from whatever. NGOs. In, NGOs are here, civil society yeah. more and so. Uh, I think if you if you look at the forum, um, they've put an interesting set of co-chairs this year. I think, you know, traditionally the co-chairs for the forum who, who kind of help yeah. uh, frame the discussion around this mm -hmm. have been business leaders, political leaders and so forth. Uh, last year, the forum made a, a substantial statement mm -hmm. uh, by having all the co-chairs as women. Mm. This year, um, almost all their co-chairs are what uh, are from their Global uh, Shapers program, young, young which are young people, yeah. and they want the young people's view to be reflected, including here, so. a former refugee. Yes, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, so it's uh, interesting that point because Davos is very sensitive to criticism. World Economic Forum, I think it's probably safe to say. I mean, I remember writing a a story my first time here six years ago where I said Davos has a PR problem um, and we've talked about this before there is obviously a lot of productive stuff that happens at Davos that helps organizations that otherwise would not be able to access this kind of influence and funding so for example I had the UN World Food Program in here earlier they need nine billion dollars yeah. um, Davos is a great way for them to make up their funding shortfall and yet, when you read the coverage of Davos as a PR person, how do you feel? Because it's just one note most of yeah. the time, right? Here are the, here's the elite, they're partying while the world goes to hell. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, I think your headline uh, still remains uh, relevant as a topic mm -hmm. of discussion that does Davos have a PR problem? And uh, I guess if you talk to uh, the media teams and those who manage the World Economic Forum Davos brand, uh, it's something um, they need to continuously battle with. I think part of it is because what Davos is, is misunderstood. Right? Mm -hmm. um, what Davos really is, it's a platform for assembling um, people from across the world, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's, whether it's business leaders or political leaders, media leaders, civil society. And I think over the years, if you look at it, uh, civil society has been engaged in a much more meaningful way than it used to be, right? Um, mm -hmm. When yeah. I started coming to Davos, one of the hallmarks here was there were always protests mm. uh, when you were going into the Congress Center and so forth. Yeah. Somebody would be protesting against something or the other, whether it's climate or it's uh, an oil spill somewhere and things through very, very uh, creative um, displays. Mm -hmm. uh, last few years, you don't see that at all. Mm. And, and I think part of that 
to give uh, credit to the World Economic Forum is, um, you know, they took that criticism they've been getting mm -hmm. and uh, they've engaged a lot more uh, partners in civil society, a lot of NGOs and so forth. And they include in the panel, they include in the discussions. And, uh, and, and also, if you look at the topics which are discussing, a lot of the issues which are important to them are there in the central agenda. Mm -hmm. right? uh, still, I think Davos gets criticism for the fact saying that, yes, there's a lot of talk, but does anything concrete happen? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I would say, uh, you know, looking at it from that lens, as always, the jury remains out on this, mm -hmm. um, you know. But if you want to look at it, you know, as always you can look at something as a glass half full or a glass half empty. If you want to look at it with the optimist view of a glass half full, the very fact that a lot of these social issues um, or environment and planetary issues are brought in here, mm -hmm. uh, in one sense, brings them to the attention of people who have vast resources mm -hmm. um, or vast political power to do something about it. And with the pressure they feel with these topics in place, um, potentially, you know, they start thinking about, should we be doing more here? Should we be investing more here? And you see all of that happening. Like, for example, uh, on the ocean front and plastics and so forth, many companies have announced uh, interesting initiatives. I think a couple of years ago, I think PNG announced their... Uh, their campaign on how they were using plastics recovered from oceans to build their uh, shampoo bottles and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, this year, um, Salesforce, who has a lounge down right here, is talking a lot about uh, saving our oceans and other things, and they made uh, big, big donations uh, to, to, to organizations there. So, you know, if you're part of Davos and engaging in these conversations, I think as, a, as an organization, you would feel the pressure that you should be doing more on it, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So can, let's come back to this topic of CEO activism, because as you mentioned, you, you had a, a very interesting discussion the other day about how yes. CEOs can and should shape um, their company's reputation. And you had on that panel, you had the chairman of Tata, and uh, Chandra Sekaran, who previously was, of course, the CEO of TCS, yes. right? So your boss in, in one way or another. Um, and he had an interesting point of view where he said, you know, it's not really about a CEO putting their personal views forward. It's about representing the views of the company. Um, what happens when those clash? Is that CEO then just yeah, in the I wrong think, job? I think that was the important point of discussion in that in that panel. Um, of course, as you said, uh, mm. our chairman was there, but we also had uh, leaders from uh, many other companies. So mm -hmm. the, the chief operations officer of uh, Bank of America, Kathy Besson, was on the panel. Yep. Jonas Prissing, the, yep. uh, uh, the chairman and CEO of uh, Manpower Group. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Kylie, who's the CEO of uh, Reputation Institute, Kylie and Wright of Ford. course, conversation yep. hosted by David Haig from uh, Brand Finance. Yep. So the topic you're talking about, yes, that was a big uh, question which was put to them, is what do you, you know, what do you do when um, your point of view is at variance with mm -hmm. what your company wishes, wishes to uh, bring out? And I think uh, one one of the interesting points which was made was that, um, um, that the panelists said that whenever there is an issue uh, which comes out which has um, you know, which, which doesn't have a clear answer and has two sides uh, of the coin and debate. The best place to debate it is in their executive committees, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there'll be different views which come in. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, uh, there needs to be something called a party line which is chosen. Mm -hmm. And when, as collective responsibility, when the management decides that this is a certain position they're taking, then it is the job of the CEO to represent that position um, irrespective mm -hmm. of uh, his or her personal thoughts on it because mm -hmm. they're playing that role. Just like now, Brexit. Hmm? Just like Brexit. Yeah, I think that was brought over by uh, by David Haig from Bank Finance saying that he had a certain view on Brexit. And, and of course, you know, it's a, it's a divisive issue. He said yeah. in, in his organization, uh, it's pretty much half and half people on, yeah. on, 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 on that side of it. So 
the question was, you know, should he express his view there? And if that's his personal view, but doesn't represent half his organization, is it fair to express it? Mm. Right. Um, as always, then no correct answers. I think these are very important discussions, very difficult yeah. discussions. Uh, the one point which the panelists also made was um, that you need to differentiate between issues. Right. Mm -hmm. If the issues to take a stance on where you can come to a, a collective position with the management team and you and you can take a stance you know you follow it but if it's a if it's a deep rooted values issue mm -hmm. and you as a person uh, are not comfortable with the position your company which is to take then you need to reflect on whether you should be working in that yeah, company I, at all I, I totally agree yeah I, I completely agree with that i hope it doesn't uh, mean anything too significant for david hay at brian finance though because i suspect his position may be at odds with some of the younger people in his company, potentially. Um, another question I have for you on CEO activism is one I heard earlier this week. I was talking to a mm -hmm. senior executive from a energy company. Mm -hmm. And this person said to me, you know, I understand CEOs are going to take a stance now. But I can't understand why, for example, you'll have the Salesforce CEO talking about gun control. I would never advise my CEO to take a stance on an issue that has nothing to do with our company. And I'm curious to know what your view is on yeah, that kind of um, challenge. I think that was a topic which was discussed uh, mm -hmm. on that panel again. And, and, and I think um, one of the mature views which came out was that uh, the panelists believed that the CEO of a company, uh, when they take a position on something, it needs to be relevant and material to their business mm -hmm. or the issues which are connected to their business, mm. right? For it to uh, be relevant, authentic, and for it to make sense to their uh, stakeholders. Mm. Um, it's entirely possible that CEOs as individuals and human beings, you know, often we see them as CEOs, but they're human beings, have personal convictions on various other issues. But um, I think one of the things is if you do take on a job, if you take on the job of a CEO, mm. um, then the responsibility which comes with it is different than yeah. what it is there for a layperson. So, yeah. you know, a layperson can express their views as they freely should. Yeah. As a CEO, any view which you express in a sense, is seen as the view expressed by your company. Yeah. And therefore, you have to be very, very careful about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, having said that, yes, there is so much pressure on CEOs today. Uh, as you said, whether it's from civil society, whether it's from their own employees wanting them to take more That's and right. more of a stance on, on, on various yeah. things. And one of the things Chandra said was, you know, we, we're very clear, we will never advocate for a political party. Right? Yes, Which that's makes, been the position of the group. Sure, and it, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's not, not only in India, but everywhere, it makes a lot of sense. But I think we're reaching a point now where you, you are going to start to see CEOs asked who, who they are supporting in a particular election. Uh, and I'm not sure um, all of them will be as disciplined as Mr. Chandra was. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak for, you know, our group, mm -hmm. and we've taken that position historically uh, throughout our 150 years of history that uh, we are apolitical as a business. Mm. So, uh, you know, we do not comment on or support any particular political party. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, as, as a company which has always supported the national interests of the communities we operate in mm -hmm. and the countries we operate in, we work with uh, whichever political party is in power and in government to uh, on a range of issues, mm. and I think um, as a business, uh, it's something. It's a it's a it's a it's a value which has uh, stood its test in time for us, and uh, you know we firmly believe that that's the right mm -hmm. thing to do. Okay, Abhinav, thank you so much for your time. As always, it's a real pleasure to have you on. 
our podcast. Our, always uh, a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Uh, you asked me a lot of questions. Can I put one to you? Absolutely. Sure. All right. So for you, you know, you called me a Davos veteran. So are you. You've been here every year. You've been, you know, participating in so yeah, many of the conversations and yep. discussions. Mm -hmm. What was the one um, standout session or conversation or, or uh, you know, a corridor conversation or whatever which struck you the most this year in Davos? What, uh, what are you going to take back as... Mm. something which you're going to reflect more on. Good question. And, and you're putting me on the spot a little bit, I'm going to pull out my phone because I want to make sure I get this person's name correct. Um, a session I went to in the Female Quotient Lounge, uh, which featured a, a coder from MIT. Mm -hmm. And I know her Twitter handle is Jovial Joy, but that's not her um, full name. Her full name, in fact, is Joy Buolamwini. Mm -hmm. She's the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. She's a Ghanaian-American. Um, she gave a, a talk about how, how she's fighting algorithmic bias. You know, there's bias in algorithms. I know people think that, that because algorithms are, are purely mathematical, they're free of bias, but they're right. not. Right? And you, she, They're not, because she, you know, algorithm is a program, and right. a program is uh, written by, uh, mostly and, by human beings. And usually <laughs> that code is written yeah. by white men, right? So that, that's one of the issues. And she was talking about how this has real implications for particularly women of color, because they're not often recognized by these algorithms. And even men of color, it's, it's a sim similar sort of thing happens. And the other thing I loved is she, she delivered her talk um, via the medium of spoken word poetry. Uh, which sounds somewhat esoteric, yeah. but actually it was remarkably impactful. She seemed she was so passionate, uh, and she was full of optimism, despite this being a really difficult challenge. Yeah. And I thought it was, uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And it was so different, honestly, it was so different from the, and, the typical Davos session. Yes, and, and I think that, you know, takes us back to the original point in our conversation, that there's so many new thoughts uh, which come out at Davos yeah. uh, that... This is part of the value it provides. It's, 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 it's a great platform for people like the lady you mentioned yeah. to bring up an issue which a lot of people would have no even idea that such a thing even exists yeah. and bring it to the attention of people with, again, with significant resources, with significant political power, with significant influence, with significant uh, projection power with its media yeah. to um, highlight their causes and issues. Yeah. Right. So I think while Davos has traditionally been the meeting ground of... Uh, business leaders and political leaders. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, I think there's so much cause-based um, activation here, and that's good for Davos, that's good for the world, and, um, you know, we hope to see more and more of it. Yeah, and it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because people often refer to Davos as a bubble, and yet I think if you have the right attitude, you can be exposed to a lot more here than you would back in your normal, everyday life. The bubble is probably your headquarters back at home. Right. Right here, yeah. this is the, the world is here. Yeah. Um, you hear so many different and diverse views. Um, I think, okay. it'll, and, and that helps you always grow right. as a company or as an organization. I need to stop now because I don't want to be on the record being this positive about Davos. So anyway, we'll, <laughs> we'll close uh, the conversation. I should apply for a media job with the World Economic <laughs> Forum if I've convinced you to be positive about it. All right. Thanks, Excellent. Thanks, Abhinav. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.